Hello, and welcome to GradCast, from Western to the World. We are the weekly radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. Uh, we are also a podcast. <laughs> um, I'm your host, Ariel Frame, here with my co-host, Yimin Chen. Hello and good evening. And behind the soundboard, our producer, Susan Anthony. Hey, y'all. And I'm glad to introduce a friend of mine who works closely with me. I actually see him probably more often than I see anybody here at Western, uh, Riley Yost. Hi, everybody. Um, R- Riley is a student in the biology department, uh, and he's going to tell us about his work with flies. Um, tell us first uh, who your supervisor is and a little bit about your project. Uh, my supervisor is Dr. Ann Simon, also in the department. Uh, of biology, and uh, I work uh, on fruit flies. And uh, what I'm looking at, uh, broadly speaking, is the genetics of social behavior, or how um, the the connections in your brain function uh, in order to drive that behavior that we see. Okay, so social behavior. Does that imply that fruit flies um, are social animals, insects? Um, <laughs> They're considered um, parasocial. Okay. Um, so, for example, in bees, uh, bees are considered social organisms because they have a social hierarchy. Uh, flies do not have that, um, but they do still interact with one another, so they can be considered parasocial. Um, yeah, so they uh, they do interact with one another. Oh, neat. That, that's really cool. Uh, can you maybe give us uh, an example of what uh, one fly might do if it meets another fly? It sounds like a setup of a joke here. <laughs> one fly say to the other fly. I was going to put in the cro- what, what what happens when the fly crosses the road, but I thought that was too corny. So <laughs> any, any either of those questions, if you want to. Yeah, so uh, one instance of, of, well, let's say a male and a female fly coming together is that that male is going to start to engage in courtship behavior. Um, and he's going to uh, display certain behaviors to her uh, in, in an attempt to uh, get uh, allow him to, to engage and reproduce. Uh, one of the things that he does uh, is both uh, visual cues and uh, what is called uh, a courtship song, uh, which is what the female will hear and uh, help her decide whether that male is worth her effort or not. A courtship song. Can you actually hear a courtship song? Not, not uh, with our ears. Oh. Uh, you would have to use special equipment to measure it. Okay. I'm really curious to know what a fruit fly or Drosophila fly, a courtship song sounds like. Yeah, I would be interested too. Like Rod Stewart maybe. But um, <laughs> no, like, so how do fruit flies actually sing? Um, I'm not uh, certainly an expert in any of, of that behavior, um, but they they usually use their wings. So there's a couple of different songs that are affected by different things. Um, and actually on the topic of genetics of social behavior, sometimes um, mutations in certain genes can actually affect that song that oh, the males wow. perform and will uh, change whether the female is receptive to him or not. I mean, that makes me think that <clears throat> it's an innate behavior that they always have they don't learn it they don't see other flies do the song and go okay that's how i do that song yeah like they the daddy fly it. teaches the his son how, <laughs> yeah. to, how to sing to to get the lady flies your son this is how you flap your wings <laughs> let me like sing you the song of my people passed down for <laughs> generations 
Uh, do they learn from other flies how to do it? Or? That I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's something I'd have to look up. Mysteries of the fly. Yeah, so we might have gone a little bit on a tangent. So <laughs> what kind of uh, what kind of behaviors do you study specifically? Um, I study, uh, one of the behaviors I study is uh, called social space. Um, so everybody, uh, including humans, has a preferred personal or social bubble, oh, right? Yeah. You don't want to be too close to people. You don't want to be too, too far away from people. And that's usually decided by um, a mix of both attractive and repulsive cues. And our flies uh, can do the same thing, and we can actually measure uh, that behavior or that, that what we call social space um, to decide and see whether flies are, are being residing closer or further apart um, as as sort of an indirect measure of how social that they're being. So more or less, you're looking at how close uh, flies sort of end up spending time with each other? Yep. Way, so yeah, so we, we will put a bunch of flies in uh, a chamber, mm-hmm. um, and then we will wait, and they will actually completely stop moving and settle at a preferred distance from each other. Oh, cool. And that, that, that is what we call social space, and that can be either larger or or a further distance or a closer distance. So the flies you're studying, they're like really tiny, right? They are, uh, yeah. What, what sort of distances are you looking at here in terms of social um, space? We're looking uh, in terms of millimeters. Okay. Um, so the way we measure, um, we measure from the center of their bodies. So they can't be closer than uh, two millimeters to each other. So uh, we've seen anywhere from that uh, close to two millimeters. Generally speaking, they'd be three to four. Um, but they can get up into the centimeters as well. Oh, wow. So you said they can't be closer than two. Is that like basically the, the minimum social sort of personal bubble? That yeah. They have? Th- at that point, if they are closer than that, they'd actually be touching. Oh, oh, well, yeah. right. That makes sense. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah. So um, so that's really interesting and the, uh, that they have this capacity to do and to 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 gauge like what the distance is between them and another fly. Uh, so how do they... So they've got those different cues that they that they send out. Um, so what what determines what kind of cues they're gonna gonna put out? Um, uh, like, will their environment more determinate, or their, their genetics, or their their history? Uh, um, I don't know. Again, again, it's kind of <laughs> do they learn it? Do they are there genes for it? Um, it's kind of a mix of all three, actually. So there is definitely a genetic predisposition to how far or how close together they want to be. However, my research um, directly looks at at the environment and how that environment affects um, their social behavior. So both of them do, and of course, uh, their history does as well affect how how close or far apart they're going to be. Okay, so how do you study the effect of environment on fly social behavior? Uh, So the environment I look at is called social isolation, uh, in which, uh, just as the name sounds, the flies are completely socially isolated, um, or they're they're raised on their own. So it's one fly in a vial, uh, and then we look at how that that affects their social space, as opposed to flies raised in a group that can all interact with each other. You're you're li- literally putting spot, uh, flies into like solitary confinement. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, and seeing and seeing how that affects. So, um, and uh, to put it in a different frame of mind, uh, it's also the, it's also done with the flies at a young age. So it's showing 
the almost the costs and benefits of an early social life. So you're basically raising flies who've never seen another fly in their life. They they do right uh, at birth. Okay. Um, and it would be uh, if you wanted to put it in terms of human age, it would be their early teenage years. Okay. Um, that they become socially isolated. All so right. uh, and that that affects them later in life at a little bit older age. And how does dare I ask how it affects them? Do they become deranged and you know? Um, they don't. Uh, we we definitely see differences in their their social behavior. So we see differences uh, in social space. Uh, what is interesting is that it is it is different for both males and females, in which we see almost an opposite effect of the environment. Have you, uh, perchance, looked uh, to see if uh, what um, solitary confinement does to humans when when they're uh, <laughs> do we see uh, something not, relative not to that? Nec- Has anyone measured that? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I I don't know if we actually could measure that because. Might be some ethical issues. There, there would be. There, yeah, right? I, it wouldn't be necessarily a controlled study, but you could look um, at a case study for there, people you know, in this, a this jail prison population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you say there's an opposite effect uh, between males and females. How is it? So how do males react versus how do females react? Um, so males that have been isolated tend to uh, be further apart. So they tend not to. Uh, they 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 tend not want to aggregate together. Whereas the females are the opposite, where they actually tend to be closer together. So it's complete opposite effects on, on their social space that we see. Just as a result of their environment, and that is uh, because they all have the exact same genes and the exact same genome. So you're isolating male flies and female flies, but when you reintroduce them to you know other flies, do, the, do their reactions differ based on whether they're reintroduced with female flies or with male flies, like same or opposite sex? Yep. Yeah, so uh, I am looking at uh, potential recovery. Okay. Um, however, it is very early, early in that stage of research, so that is yet to come. Can they recognize each other? Like, is there a way that they can say, oh, that's my brother, so I'm going to hang out closer? Um, th- we don't actually look at stuff like that. There are uh, other labs in the department who do. Um, in terms of them recognizing each other, I'm not sure. Do flies even have families? <laughs> <laughs> well, you said they had the same genetics. Like Correct, yeah. So the are, flies are they like I clones? use, the, um, they are... Um, I don't know if I would call them isogenic, which is a technical term for like almost genetically identical. Very similar. Uh, can you tell us about the, our... We talk about, when you use a model organism, we'll often refer to a wild type. So maybe you can tell us what that means to have a wild type and what wild type we have and why they might be very similar in our case, which may not be reminiscent of the flies you see on your bananas at home. Right. So we uh, our wild type, the term wild type comes um, uh, to the fact that an organism has um, a normal a normal genome and that would, in the wild population, would represent um, the, the flies and their phenotypes that we see in the wild. So this is this is their genetics. Correct. So yeah. the ones in the wild would be maybe more variable. Potentially, yeah. Okay. So um, we have uh, a lot of different subspecies of flies that come from uh, a lot of different parts of the world that have been um, captured uh, from the wild at at different times of the year. So uh, those are uh, different times in history. I mean, so for example, our oldest strain has been in the lab for over thirty years. How, how many generations is that? Oh, that would be a lot. 
Well, I mean, what is the average length of a generation for one of these fruit flies? Um, Someone can do the math. Yeah, our flies, uh, my flies generally uh, uh, are not alive for more than 10 days, uh, but there's a new generation every 10 days. Wow. So from the very beginning, a male and a female, to uh, an adult fly would be 10 days. So 30 years, 10 days, how many 10 days in 30 years? Someone else can do the math, but... So at this point, is it because they're bred together so much that they're so genetically similar? Uh, potentially. Um, I would think it would be more along the lines of adaptations from being in the lab for so long and not being out in the wild. So They're complacent. They are, <laughs> yes. They're, they're very content where they are. There's no predators. There's lots and lots of food and lots of opportunity for reproduction. So uh, so you work on ones that are have been in the lab for a long time. A so very long time, they're yeah. Just, they're just really easy to deal with. Or yes. Why do you have them? Um, first of all, uh, we have them because uh, because of their fast generation times. They're also uh, very affordable to house and to raise. Uh, and uh, actually, what is interesting is that with the fly and the certain flies that we have, I can order flies online just as you would clothes or, or whatever you'd order online. Uh, and those flies I can order online could have mutations or changes in their genes for, for any gene that they have. So that's one advantage to working with the fly. Yeah, there's like a fly Amazon, fly base. Yeah, it's called fly base. <laughs> we do go check fly base and you can just find whatever gene you want. Yeah, so there's a bunch of stock centers and we can just log on and uh, put in a credit card number and they send us flies. Do they actually like come in the mail? Yep. Oh, wow. They do. Are they just sort of like buzzing around in boxes or are they uh, in no, eggs? No, so they'll be, they'll like be in uh, uh, little vials. So the, the vials will have lots of food in the bottom and, and uh, usually they'll be capped with something. That is so cool. Things that you uh, don't really hear about or think about if you're not spending time in the fly lab. I mean, it, it's actually interesting how there's this, uh, it's actually fostered a lot of collaboration when you can send an organism that easily. Uh, I mean, I even, uh, coming from the C. elegans world as well, which is a, an even smaller organism to work with. That's a, that's a nematode, isn't it? That's a nematode worm. Like a like little wormy thing? Yeah, okay. it's a little worm that's, that's you know, a tenth of the size of a fruit fly, so you can imagine it's much mm-hmm. smaller. But even with fruit flies and with nematode worms, which those worlds co- they co- they they work together as well. Uh, interestingly, um, you can like put some flies in your pocket and fly to Japan and meet your collaborator and hand them some of your new stock that you've generated. And people do that. <laughs> well, so then why are things like fruit flies used so frequently for research? Like, what is the advantage of using of using fruit flies as opposed to, um, you know, people? Um, the advantage of fruit flies, uh, I would say the best thing is that they are small because mm-hmm. of those advantages and, uh, they are affordable and because of their fast generation time, I can have as many flies as I need quickly. Um, so that's one of the reasons, um, and remarkably or not, the flies actually share and possess a lot of the same, uh, in terms of brain function as, as what humans do. Um, so obviously it's not completely the same, but they have structures that resemble and have slightly similar functions to, to that of, of humans. Okay, so 
so basically the things you're learning from the flies can sort of translate to other animals as well. We hope one day in the, in the probably far future, uh, we can really relate uh, humans. Uh, for now, it, it will just be fruit flies. However, they do have um, the way um, all of the connections in their brain function and those basic underlying mechanisms of how they work is, is similar to humans. Okay, so you've been talking about fruit flies' brains. And, Correct. And so how do you study a fruit fly's brain? I mean, it's sort of news to me that they even really have one. Um, the, the way uh, mostly we study brains, the way our lab studies, um, studies the behavior um, is by looking at different things that are potentially altered and how those, those things that are altered affect our social behavior. Um, so what we can say is that if... Uh, for example, we have a gene that is not functioning properly, mm -hmm. and they also don't behave properly. We can also we can um, conclude that that gene is potentially important for that behavior. Okay. That we see. So are you seeing sort of modifications in genes um, based on your isolation of fruit flies? Um, I I do look at one gene in particular mm -hmm. uh, and see how that is affected. Uh, by social isolation, but that is also still very early, um, early research. So, um, in, in as much as we can relate, because um, we know now more and more we're finding similarities in some of these behaviors and some of the pathways in the brain uh, from flies to humans. Um, um, can you think of any particular examples that stand out to you for like a particular gene where we knew it had some some effect in a human and uh, we went and looked at it in the fly and modified it and the similar modification we see the effect the similar effect it had in a human it had in a fly or vice versa right so uh for example i'll, I'll dive in i work on uh, a gene called neuroligin 3 uh, which our flies have um, and humans have as well, and in humans, uh, that gene is a candidate gene for autism, uh, autism spectrum disorders, uh, in which case the behavior that we see in patients with uh, the autism spectrum disorders, uh, the, the key diagnostic behavior is abnormal social interactions. So thus, we are, are looking at um, the, the neuroligin genes in, in the fruit fly uh, and, and looking at those effects as, as potentially a cause of autism in humans. So it sort of just comes around full circle. Things that, well, because there is this similarity, right? So things that happen in fruit fly brains could be related to things that happen in, in human brains. Right, and uh, it doesn't just end there as well. Um, the same genes uh, can be found in bees and they can be found in mice. Um, and all of them as well have abnormal social behavior uh, when this gene is not functioning properly. So it's not just flies that, uh, that have similar functions. So all animals have, it, in some way, perhaps, if they have social interactions, might express this gene to some extent. They might, yeah, and they might have uh, similar, similar methods of, of um, that signal uh, transduction in the brain and how the brain functions. Uh, could we um, maybe... Is, could you maybe describe to us a little bit um, what what that gene does, basically, like simply? Because I mean, I'm sure it has some like complex functions. Yep. But if you're um, a cell, then why do you need it? 
If you are a cell, and uh, the cell type we're, we're, we work with, obviously, because we're in the brain, are neurons. So neurons are uh, the fundamental cells of how our brain communicates um, with, with its different parts and with each individual cell. So the gene that I look at is uh, what is called a cell adhesion molecule, and uh, it has uh, lots of functions. Uh, primarily, it helps uh, form uh, synapses, and synapses are that space that we see in between two neurons. If you can think of your, your typical neuron picture, uh, it's present in that space and uh, connects with uh, a partner uh, uh, in, from one neuron and actually holds those neurons together and uh, ensures proper communication of those neurons. So without it, we, we do not have uh, proper signaling between neurons and between and between different sections of our brain. So like, if it doesn't work properly, different cells in your brain, different parts of your brain can't talk to each other properly. Correct, and, and, that, and that is where we see um, potentially the abnormal behavior resulting. So uh, most likely uh, is they can't, um, they don't have proper perception of signals from another individual and they can't integrate those signals properly. So, I mean, bringing back to autism, you know, so would this re be related to um, sort of one of the symptoms? People with autism sometimes can't read social cues, can't read sort of body language and uh, maybe tone of voice and things like that. So, but in a way, flies have their own version of, of this. Correct. Yes. And uh, with uh, when we look at social space, we see that they do have abnormal uh, social interactions uh, when this gene is not functioning properly. You measure just how they interact and how close or far they are. At, what do they do in sort of maybe in the natural world that would mean that it was, would be beneficial to be closer together or further apart? Uh, in the natural world, they certainly do um, tend to aggregate together, uh, and it's mostly around common, common resources such as food. Um, and protection. So in the wild, uh, for example, the, the biggest thing that comes to my head about being part of a group um, is, is both uh, for, for foraging opportunities, reproductive opportunities, and to avoid predators because there's safety in numbers. That, does, that applies to flies as well. Correct, yeah. On the flip side, um, are there any advantages at all of being like a solitary lone wolf kind of fly? Not... Uh, not that I have uh, encountered anyway. Uh, if they don't, uh, they, if they aren't social, they are not going to have a successful reproductive life. Um, and they're just going to die alone. So I would, I, I'm, I'm would say no. Okay, so this would be like a negative effect if they do end up um, increasing distances based on things like social isolation. Correct, yeah. I mean, I guess... Uh... You'd mentioned that um, I think it's worth mentioning that um, you said that they have ten day, ten days. That's their life cycle. But um, how long do they actually live in the wild? Uh, in the wild, uh, normally only about a week, a week to two weeks in the wild. Uh, in the lab setting, though, again because it's it's great conditions for them, they can live up to 150 days. Oh, so wow. it's a big difference. Yeah. That's mostly because there's no predators. And Correct. Yeah. There's food. yeah. Yeah, they have lots of chances to survive. So um, I'm just 
imagining a room full of flies just flying around there. Like, what do you feed them? Do you just bring a fruit bowl in every day? We don't know. We have uh, a special mix that we buy from a supplier that has uh, lots of nutrients for the flies in it. Um, and that food is made for us every week. Uh, and, and it's uh, basically just like making oatmeal. So we boil some water, pour in the powder, and that's what they eat. Have you ever tasted it? Yes. Uh, it's not that bad. Uh, it's mostly sugar. Oh. Nice. Well, so, all right. so like basically any breakfast cereal. So it's not that bad. <laughs> it's like porridge with medicine in it. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, I guess this is a, not really a question about your research, but have there been any follies? Everyone seems to think that science and research just goes in a perfect order of things. Do you ever find that there's... No, it's it's never a perfect order of things. <laughs> um, what I've been doing now, uh, I've been doing for about three months now, so we're almost successfully there, but uh, it, it, uh, it's certainly never as smooth as what you think it's going to be. That's for sure. So um, y- you've, you've been, you've been uh, in the Simon Lab uh, more than the three months since you've started grad Correct, school, right? Yeah. You've done a year before that or a couple years before that, right? Yeah. Um, so now, actually, you've got a quite a good amount of experience with flies. Um, if anyone out there were interested in, like, hey, flies are kind of cool, you know, maybe I'd be interested in working with flies. What uh, what would you, what kind of advice would you give to them? Or, or genetics. Or genetics. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about working with flies and what could you tell to someone who's interested in that? Um, I would say definitely express your interest um, to uh, either a professor or a researcher who does that. That would be your best opportunity to work with that and investigate that. Is that how you got in the lab? It is, yes. Um, Dr. Simon was a professor in one of my classes, so I approached her about uh, volunteering in the lab which uh, I did uh, for a couple summers, and, and now I've been uh, working as a grad student. Okay, great. Well, uh, we're just about out of time here, so uh, if you could leave us uh, last minute with uh, where people can maybe get a hold of you or your lab if they want to follow up and see what you've been doing. Um, I do have a Twitter account, uh, which is at uh, Riley T. Yost. Could you maybe spell spell out yeah, Riley? It's uh, it's R Y L E Y T N Y O S T. Great, thank you very much. Uh, it's been great having you on the show and talking about flies. Um, I have been your host Ariel Frame uh, with a co-host Yemin Chen and producer Susan Anthony, and you've been listening to Riley Riley Yost. Um, uh, we are a podcast and radio show produced by Society of Graduate Students here at Western. Um, And we are also aired on CHRW. You would know that if you're listening to us at 6 p.m. every Tuesday. Um, If you want to download our podcast, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found, including iTunes and Google Play. Uh, Also, if you just want to open up your browser to gradcast.ca, you can see all our episodes streaming uh, online. And if you want to get a hold of us because you want to come on the show because uh, you're a grad student here at Western and you're interested in t- chatting with us about it, or you're a grad student and you want to sit here behind the mic and be a host, it's uh, it's really fun to do, um, and it's good on your CV, and we're, uh, we're a fun group, to, so come hang out with us. Email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. I just got to sneak this in here. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana.
I laugh at my own joke. Was the new jingle composed for GradCast by Matthew Becker, a PhD candidate in composition at Western University. Matthew is a George Proctor Memorial Award winner and a recipient of Ontario Graduate Scholarships in 2015. He completed his Master's in Music and Composition at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon under the composer Gula Xapo. And from 2009-2010, Malcolm Forsyth. His critical work has been performed in places such as the Saskatchewan Symphony Orchestra and the Zombathili Hungary Ensemble. Matthew's compositions frequently include unique applications of rhythm, which often result in intricate counterpoint among horizontal or vertical sonic events. His research involves compositions for chamber ensembles, modern approaches to song, and electroacoustic processing. If you want to know more about Matthew Becker, please check out his website at matthewbecker.ca.